Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and that is Slayers South of Heaven. Just kind of felt in the mood to play it. And uh, also, it seemed kind of fitting since we're currently living in a disease infested hellscape. I kid, kinda. And I know, I know. Copyrighted uh, music, yeah. Moving on, you can probably tell this is going to be an, uh, an unscripted episode. <laughs> Oh, and before we dig in, I'd like to quickly thank Jim Dunn for becoming a Weekend Out Patreon supporter. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. And so I think that puts us at just around 14 Patreon supporters. Uh, not too shabby, and thank you, all of you. And as I always say, you know, don't be shy. If any of you Patreon supporters have ideas for bonus content, just let me know. Okay, so like I usually do with these news story episodes, I just kind of collect or curate stories that grab my attention throughout the week. And so I don't know if some of these stories might seem a bit stale, or now that I see them, I'm kind of questioning why I even considered, you know, uh, covering them on the show. Because this first one has nothing at all to do with religion or atheism. And to be honest, I think a few of these stories are that way. They, they're they not in the usual wheelhouse of the show. I usually don't get political unless it has something, you know, directly to do with religion or atheism, a separation of church and state issues, that kind of thing. I know I've gotten a little political you know, over the last couple of episodes, but I think it's just tensions are so high and uh, everyone's just so divided that it's kind of hard to ignore political stories given the current, you know, landscape or whatever. And I've covered a couple of these since the death of George Floyd and all the civil unrest that followed in its wake. Uh, it's another one of those bad cop stories. And I remember when I first saw the video of this, it just seemed so outrageous to me that I'm like, oh, I gotta talk about this on the show. And here we are, you know, roughly a week later, and it's one of those stories that, I, you know, upon second thought, seem kind of weird. I don't know if it's so outside the usual wheelhouse of the show, if I should even talk about it, but here we are, you know, so I might as well just uh, just cover it now. And so this story comes out of Buffalo, which is strange because I think there were a couple of other kind of, you know, bad cop stories that came from Buffalo. I don't know if it's in the drinking water or what. Uh, but remember, I think uh, Martin Gugino, the uh, 70-something-year-old uh, Catholic peace activist who was shoved to the ground uh, by a cop in riot gear and ended up sustaining a serious head injury. Well, luckily in this case, no one was physically harmed, that I'm aware of, you know, uh, but still a really kind of outrageous story. And so this young woman recorded her encounter with, uh, with law enforcement, and I was about to describe her as being, you know, either black or possibly biracial, and, and then I was about to kind of chide myself and say, oh, well, her race really shouldn't matter, you know what I mean? But I guess given the current climate or landscape, you know, racial tensions coming to a head, uh, specifically, you know, tension between law enforcement and the African-American community, I guess, you know, her race or ethnicity could be a factor. Um, and, and so it was one particular cop who she uh, had an encounter with. And when I create a YouTube version of this episode, uh, you YouTube viewers will be able to see what I'm talking about. This guy, 
bears an uncanny resemblance to Alex Jones. Yeah, very strange. Uh, so let me set the stage a bit. So, uh, yeah, you have this young black or possibly biracial woman, and uh, she she comes to this scene where there's literally, uh, I think, around 10 police officers, most of them just standing around. Well, a couple of them try to, you know, subdue or kind of wrangle um, this young guy who, uh, I guess they found like two crack pipes on him. He possibly may have, uh, been violent towards, uh, his family or something like that. And, um, you know, th this young woman, uh, like a lot of young people, you know, I think it's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I can remember I was this way. Young people can sometimes be really kind of, idealistic, almost overly idealistic, you know, where they find a cause and just kind of go all in with it, you know, and become kind of very zealous and have to make sure everyone else knows about their cause too. And like I was saying, that could kind of be like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can probably be pretty annoying for some of the people, you know, they come in contact with. Um, but on the other hand, I think that kind of fire and passion and idealism can help to fuel a movement, you know what I mean? And if your specific cause is to try to, you know, end police brutality and to, you know, fight for equality for a certain minority group, I mean, those are very good causes, you know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. And it's good to have young people in a movement who, are, who really have that genuine passion and fire you know, and so the feeling I got is that this was a kind of young, idealistic person who saw someone surrounded by a large group of cops, you know, and felt like she had a duty to try to step in and make sure it wasn't a case of police brutality or something like that, you know. And so this one cop in particular, and it's kind of, the dude definitely gives off a creepy vibe. I guess, takes offense at the fact that she's recording them. You know what I mean? So he gets right up in her face. Like, you can tell, um, you know, even it's a kind of first-person perspective because, you know, she's filming with her phone or whatever. But you get the feeling that it seems like he was right up in her personal space and giving her these really creepy kind of looks, you know what I mean? To the point where... My gut reaction was that the guy probably either wanted to, you know, F her or kill her. You know what I mean? Really creepy, kind of odd, like like almost dead-eyed but leering at the same time. Uh, really strange. But this all culminates in him calling her the C-word. Uh, and I always feel kind of childish using terms like the C word, the N word, but these are very powerful words in as much as words can be powerful. You know, we've kind of invested them with power and they've become very charged and loaded. And I'm trying to err on the side of sensitivity and caution and don't want to, you know, unnecessarily uh, hurt or offend, you know, anyone. Um, but yeah, he, he calls her the C word. And for a moment, a very sick part of me wished that I had like a soundboard with clips on it, like Happy Days clips. 
like Fonzie going, hey, Mrs. C, Mr. C, totally different effect in that context. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I've talked about this on the show before a long, long time ago. Um, you know, there's another story that involves someone dropping the C word. And um, I was making the point that I know in other Western cultures or whatever, like uh, in Britain and in Australia, uh, the word is used very differently. It's almost used more loosely and it's something, you know, you can kind of jokingly refer to a friend or some, you know, random, it could be, a, a, uh, often is a male, you know what I mean? Um, I think I told jokingly before too how a long time ago, uh, how I had been at a New Year's Eve party and gotten, gotten incredibly drunk and high and I kind of slipped into a joking uh, Australian accent and was throwing that word around in the way that, you know, an Aussie would, not in the way it's used here in America, but nevertheless still got in trouble. Uh, yeah, it was a female friend who was throwing a New Year's Eve party and wanted to make a good impression on her future in-laws. And there I am. <laughs> but in fairness, I wasn't the only person... Uh, smoking pot and drinking that night. Uh, things got pretty wild, but hey, what are you going to do? But yeah, here in America, the C word, take a drink, uh, has more of a misogynistic bite than the Aussie or British use, you know what I mean? And it's probably not much of an exaggeration to say that it's kind of like the female equivalent of the N word. You know what I mean? If you want to quickly dismiss, mortify, or dehumanize a woman, that's like dropping a nuclear bomb. You know, it's probably close to the equivalent of um, of using the N-word, you know, calling a black person the N-word. So finally, I'll play the clip. Not the whole thing, because I think the whole thing's like five minutes long. And just for context, you know, he accuses her of being disrespectful. And I don't think she was being disrespectful at all. She was kind of being young and idealistic and kind of challenging authority in a bit, you know, trying to make a stand. But she wasn't screaming or yelling. Uh, she wasn't swearing that I remember, you know. I think this cop just resented, you know, being uh, challenged or, you know, recorded or whatever. Uh, but here's the clip. We have cameras too. Okay. Get away Good. from me. Can you get away from me? No. Why? Move me. I'm not gonna move me, but you can get away from me though. No. You can get away from me. No, I don't. Personal space. Excuse me. Is this your car? Nope. I don't oh, have a car. Is it? I just saw you in a car. But it's not mine. Yeah? Mm -hmm. How are you? I'm good. He's got two crack pipes and just attacked his mother. It doesn't matter. It does matter. He doesn't matter. have to talk to you. He doesn't. There's, there's no need for all these policemen to handle someone who's on drugs. Mm -hmm. There isn't. Okay. Do you think they, they you need one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people to handle someone who's on drugs? He's not in his right mind? And violent. Huh? And violent. There's ten people that needs to handle someone? He was holding a weight in his hand. He could have smacked you in the head. I wasn't near him. I wasn't going to go near him. Yeah. I was far away from him. Mm -hmm. You're a disrespectful little f***ing That's what you are. And so obviously this version of the video was censored, but I'm sure you can 
tell what he's saying, you know? And so she makes another video later because that cop who was up in her personal space and called her the C word, he actually followed her and her friend when they, you know, after they got in their car and just waited for them to, you know, slip up so he'd have a reason to pull them over. And so she she records that encounter too. So, I mean, that is, uh, if you put yourself in her shoes, that is pretty creepy, man. And just my honest take on both of these people, you know, like I already stated, I think um, she's young and idealistic, which can be, you know, a, a very good thing, um, especially given the causes that she's probably interested in. It's like I said before, probably trying to end police brutality. And if that ever can be, you know, 100% achieved, um, but still a good goal to, you know, to, to shoot and push for. Um, I can see how she might be, you know, annoying or whatever. Um, if I picture, you know, a good cop, and I think this guy's a dick, but if, if there was a good cop there that, you know, she was having that encounter with, a guy who's just trying to, you know, do right, do his job, go home at the end of the day, you know, your job is to what, maybe guard the perimeter while, while the other cops, you know, handle the suspect or whatever, and all of a sudden there's someone in your face going, me, 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 <laughs> you know, what? We don't, you don't need that many cops or whatever. Um... I can get why, you know, how that might be annoying or frustrating or whatever, but there's, I don't even have to state it. There's obviously no call to call a young woman who, who believes, you know, in her heart that she's doing the right thing. The C word, you shouldn't call, I mean, someone would have to be being a really awful human being to justify calling them that. And so to call a young girl, you know what I mean? Um that word it's crazy and just i mean the ethics of it aside um just uh practically speaking for his own good it's like you have why would you use that why would you do that if you're a cop and you know that people tend to you know video you you knew she was recording you you knew it you know what I mean? He acknowledged it. I don't know if he had, you know, um, a body cam or anything, but he knew, even knew he was being recorded and he still, he still called her that, you know what I mean? Oh my, like what the hell goes through someone like, like that's head, you know? But I was looking at different articles about this story and I guess he had an extensive misconduct history. Um... And uh, there was one article that was mentioning how much uh, how much he makes. And I think it said um, in one recent year, I don't know if it was 2019 or 2018, he made 90 something thousand dollars. And then oddly, I think the year before he made 120,000. I don't know why the next year was uh, less than the previous. I don't know if it has to do with uh, overtime or something, or if maybe it had something to do with um, disciplinary actions. I don't know. But let's see. I just pulled up an article from WGRZ. I don't know if they're a local NBC affiliate in the Buffalo. Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think they are uh, out of Buffalo. Yeah, it says he's been suspended four times 
and been the subject of 36 misconduct complaints lodged by citizens or the department. Um, see, investigative post obtained the disciplinary records of Lieutenant Michael A. DeLong under the State Freedom of Information Law. His disciplinary card lists a 30-day suspension in November of 2018 for an unspecified domestic incident, a one-day suspension the year before for a violation of procedures, a one-day suspension in 2014 for off-duty misconduct, and a two-day suspension in 2009 for excessive use of force. All suspensions were without pay. And you know it's a weird coincidence that just dawned on me? I played Slayers South of Heaven at the beginning of this episode, and uh, that song actually has the C word in it. Um, well, a variant or whatever. Uh, I, I always wondered if that part, if that lyric was inspired by The Exorcist. Um, if there's any other Exorcist fans out there, remember the part where, um, so the girl's mother, uh, Regan McNeil, who gets possessed, her mother is a, uh, a famous actress. Actress, why can't I talk? And uh, I'm tired, very tired. I just took my uh, amitriptyline before I decided to uh, record this. Uh, and that can make me kind of groggy and foggy-headed. Anyway, Regan McNeil's mother is friends with a director named, um, is it Burke Denning? Or Burke Dennings, I think is the character's name. And the possessed girl kills him. And then uh, later on, she imitates his voice. And because uh, the guy always was like swearing like a sailor and everything. And so in that really creepy, you know, Mercedes McCambridge, the voice actress for, uh, you know, for the exorcist, for the possessed girl's voice, says, I'm going to give myself a pass here. Says, do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? What's wrong with me? Remember how I was saying I wasn't going to, you know, use any strong language, uh, no particular words, didn't want to... Um, hurt or offend anyone, uh, well, I guess, like I said, giving myself a pass. And it's, uh, it's in a different form. It's more of the, the adjective form of the word. But yeah, Slayer in South of Heaven uses the, uh, the phrase cunting daughters. And so just a final note on this story before we move on. Uh, I have to admit, I was kind of jealous when I heard how much this guy makes. I'm like roughly around a thousand, you know, a hundred thousand bucks a year or more. And in fairness, I know that what we see in this video might not be a, you know, a fair example of what one of these cops' lives is like or their job entails on, you know, any given day. But yeah, because you're watching like two or three cops uh, actually, you know, trying to subdue or, you know, handle or wrangle the suspect. And then about seven or eight cops just standing around, you know, and one of them has enough free time to give this girl, you know, a hard time or whatever. And I'm like, geez, man, I'm like, I work my ass off. You know, I mean, um, my whole body's like sore by the time I go home, home at the end of the day, you know, working construction. And I'm like, a hundred thousand bucks, man. Holy shit. 
And that also brings to mind, and we've probably all had experiences like this, you know, times where I've driven by a traffic detail and instead of paying attention to, you know, the oncoming traffic, the cop, you'll see a cop kind of shooting the shit or laughing with like a DPW worker. Or I think it was this past winter, I was working in Woburn, Mass. I was on my way home and there's this kind of like dangerous every man for himself four way, you know, intersection. And uh, there had been a cop there all week. And at this particular time, and instead of paying attention to, you know, the traffic, the cop's just looking down at his phone, fiddling away. I'm like, okay, I guess this is up to me, you know. Uh, and I'm not trying to be extra hard, you know, or pile on, you know, concerning law enforcement. Just, just venting here. But yeah, whenever I do see something like that, I'm like, hmm, I wonder how much they make. Okay, anyway, moving on. So uh, this next segment, and this might seem like a non sequitur or out, of, you know, from out of nowhere, uh, but I I'm a big Doors fan, as you guys probably know. And um, I remember uh, it, it was either in one of the many Doors or Jim Morrison biographies I've read or in one of the documentaries I was watching uh, or I've watched. And I think it was the, the Doors producer, Paul Rothschild, but he was talking about how Jim Morrison was highly literate and always had a, a book in hand, you know, and it was usually either a, a book by another author that he was, you know, currently reading or a, a notebook containing his own literary ideas or, you know, bits of poetry or song ideas. And uh, he had one notebook, I guess, which um, is probably just Jim Morrison's dark sense of humor, which was entitled Abortion Stories. And that's what I'll call this segment, Abortion Stories. Isn't that cherry? And okay, so this first one is from the BBC, and it dates back to the 29th of June. And it's entitled China Forcing Birth Control on Uyghurs to Suppress Population, report says. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, but yeah, if you're not familiar with the Uyghurs, um, and, and that's, it always, I'm such a, a child, it, uh, it makes me think about how when, uh, when I was a kid growing up, and I'm not trying to be, you know, offensive here, but the slang for someone who, you know, like some white kid who is trying really hard to come off as like a black inner city kid, you know, uh, gold chains, backwards baseball hat, trying to throw signs and stuff. They were called Wiggers. This isn't, we're not talking about uh, Wiggers, we're talking about Uyghurs. And, uh, and don't come at me, that wasn't the N-word, that was the W-word, okay? You guys know I wouldn't drop an N-bomb. Um, anyway, so the, I remember the Uyghurs, like, years ago being in the news, and, and this is the first time I've heard them mentioned, uh, mainstream news in a while but they're a muslim minority community in china and there's been a long history of them uh being kind of mistreated by the the chinese government so this story you know is saying that basically china is going is going as far as to force birth control on this uh, on this minority population so let's see China is forcing women to be sterilized or fitted with contraceptive devices in, is it Xinjiang or something? I probably just butchered that. <laughs> I know I have at least one Chinese uh, listener or a listener in China. Um, maybe they can help me with that. Anyway, in an apparent attempt to limit the population of Muslim Uyghurs, according to new research. 
The report by China scholar Adrian Zenz has prompted international calls for the United Nations to investigate. China denies the allegations in the report, calling them baseless. The state is already facing widespread criticism for holding Uyghurs in detention camps. It is believed that there are about one million Uyghur people and other mostly Muslim minorities detained in China in what the state defines as re-education camps. That has a very scary ring to it.、Um, China previously denied the existence of the camps before defending them as a necessary measure against terrorism following separatist violence in the Xinjiang. Region probably butchered that again. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called on China to immediately end these horrific practices. In a statement, he urged all nations to join the United States in demanding an end to these dehumanizing abuses. China has faced mounting global scrutiny over its treatment of Uyghurs in recent years. An investigation by the BBC in 2019 suggested that children in the Xinjiang <laughs> take a drink every time, <laughs> you know. Barring that you're not driving, every time I mispronounce that place name, were being systematically separated from their families in an effort to isolate them from their Muslim communities. And so now some abortion news from home.、Uh, <laughs> Jesus <clears throat> said the atheist.、Um, yeah, so I, it caught my attention because、uh, you know the local news radio is always playing in the background at work. And last week,、um, there was like two different abortion sto- abortion stories once again,、uh, you know, involving the Supreme Court,、uh, SCOTUS decisions or whatever. And、uh, I know recently there was a couple of su- Supreme Court decisions that I think kind of surprised everyone because they kind of sided,、um, you know, on the、uh, the more kind of liberal or progressive side. Um, and one was this decision:、uh, U.S. top court strikes down law limiting abortions. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a law restricting abortions in Louisiana is unconstitutional. In a landmark decision, the justices said a law requiring that doctors who provide abortions have the right to admit patients at a local hospital placed an undue burden on women. Chief Justice John Roberts joined liberal justices in the five-to-four decision in a blow to anti-abortion groups. The court struck down a similar policy in Texas in 2016.、Uh, let's see. This was the first major abortion case ruling from the Supreme Court during the Trump presidency. And so yesterday, while I was prepping for the show, I was kind of going over the articles I wanted to cover again, and the embedded photo in this article kind of really caught my attention. Uh, so, it, it shows a bunch of、uh, anti-abortion protesters outside of、uh, the Supreme Court, and there's a like a young woman and a young guy, and they're both atheists,、uh, atheist anti-abortion activists or whatever, and so the girl is holding a sign that says "atheist feminist pro-life," and the guy is holding a sign that says "atheist against abortion." And so I think at first blush, this can seem kind of you know surprising or counterintuitive, because、uh, I think people assume, often rightly so, that、uh, you know if you're an atheist, you're probably left-leaning, progressive, and that you probably don't value the quote-unquote sanctity of unborn life the way you know a religious person might. 
But even though it's less common, I think you can definitely be an atheist and be pro-life. Me personally, I tend to err heavily on the right of the mother or the woman's right to choose. But that being said, I think most decent people can probably agree that abortion is inherently negative in the sense that you are terminating a life, something that's in the process of becoming a human being. So, you know, not a cause for celebration, something that's, I think, you know, inherently sad, you know? And hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm trying to lecture anyone, you know, because as I always say, I think, you know, there's this kind of warped caricature that come that tends to come from, uh, you know, people on the religious right, uh, pro-life people, as if people are wantingly having uh, abortions without a care or something. And li like I've said, I think no one understands just how serious having an abortion is more than the woman who faces the choice of whether to have one or not. You know what I mean? And so I try to always approach the subject of abortion with all due humility, keeping in mind that I'm a guy and I'm never going to have to face the difficult decision of what to do with an unborn life inside of me. Unless it's like a xenomorph situation, I get impregnated with an alien parasite. Uh, always comes back to horror movies with me. And of course, when it comes to abortion, there can be all sorts of different contexts or mitigating factors. You know, there could be concerns for the life of the mother. Uh, there could be something horribly wrong with the fetus where it's not viable. You know what I mean? But yeah, I think you can definitely be an atheist and be pro-life. Like I often say, I think atheists are often very principled human beings. And, uh, you know, you can be um, an atheist and be vegan. Um, many atheists are, you know, humanists. Um, so you can, you know, lack a belief in a higher power and still value human life or, you know, all life in general. And I think for myself personally, it's kind of hard to put into words, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently, you know, even trying to, you know, cut out animal products from my diet and that kind of thing, um, where I think there's something, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, there's something about knowing that we only get this one life, as far as I can see, you know, <laughs> and... Um, that we're both humans and non-human animals alike. We're all in this in this boat together. We're, we're all susceptible to pain, fear, and suffering. And knowing that we have this kind of shared ancestry, this kind of lineage of common ancestors, you know, um, in a way it makes me care about life even more or have more pity and compassion for my other living beings uh, who also have, you know, a nervous system, uh, once again, that are susceptible to pain and fear and suffering. We're all in this uh, this existential boat together, you know what I mean? Um, and, and no one gets through this kind of veil of tears, to borrow, uh, you know, a religious phrase, without their, uh, without their share of suffering. And that makes me want to kind of try to ease the suffering of others or have or approach uh, life with some measure of uh, compassion and decency, you know? Okay, but then the other shoe dropped and the Supreme Court 
kind of made you know another kind of more conservative, more conservative uh, decision in favor of uh, the Trump administration. So this is from the New York Times. Uh, Supreme Court upholds Trump administration regulation letting employers opt out of birth control coverage. The regulation was the latest attempt to undermine the contraception mandate, a signature initiative of the Obama administration. And this uh, is dated to July 8th. The Supreme Court on Wednesday upheld a Trump administration regulation that lets employers with religious or moral objections limit women's access to birth control coverage under the Affordable Care Act and could result in as many as 126,000 women losing contraceptive coverage from their employers. The 7-2 decision was the latest turn in seven years of fierce litigation over the quote-unquote contraception mandate. Once again, a signature initiative of the Obama administration that required most employers to provide cost-free coverage for contraception and that the Trump administration has sought to limit. Okay, and so I was just talking about how he can be an atheist and be pro-life and all that. Uh, Me personally, I have absolutely no problem with birth control or contraception. You know, no moral qualms whatsoever. So to me, this is disgusting. I mean, it's bad enough in this country that our health insurance is usually, you know, tethered to our jobs. But to add insult to injury on top of that, now your employer can decide whether or not you can get birth control or whether or not it's covered. I mean, we already give so much of our lives to our employers you know, maybe 35 to 40 something or more hours a week, we slave away in return, you know, to get, I don't know, kind of like credits in return, currency. You know, we, as the saying goes, you know, we often give the best years of our lives to an employer, just countless hours upon hours of our life that we, this one life we have that we can never get back. And then it, it almost seems like a weird kind of invasion of privacy that your medic, you know, what's more personal than your own body and your health and our health care, our health insurance is all tangled up to our jobs, which makes it harder to leave and find a better job. You know what I mean? And on top of that, now it's like you have some demented old uncle, you know, looking up under your skirt. No birth control for you, missy. Not not under my roof, you know. Uh, just gross, gross. And it's funny. I think I've talked about this a few times on the show and hopefully I don't seem like I'm being a hypocrite or doing a total 180. Cause I know I was just talking about how I can sympathize with an atheist who is also pro-life and talking about, you know, my respect for life and all that. But when it comes to abortion, yeah, it's weird because it's such a big deal or hang up for Christians. But when you look at the Bible, I think... There's next to, to nothing having to do with abortion or, you know, kind of prohibitions or anything having to do with abortion. I think isn't the one story that people are usually able to dig up uh, regarding abortion in the Bible is in the Old Testament. And if anything, it's kind of strangely pro-abortion or can be seen that way. And was it's like the trial of the bitter waters or whatever. And I've read it verbatim, you know, chapter and verse. Uh, I just too lazy to dig it up now, but take my word for it. Look it up yourselves. You know, 
But the story, yeah, it's the trial of the bitter waters or something like that. And if a woman is pregnant and she's suspected of adultery, her husband can kind of take her to a, um, a priest or to the temple where she drinks some kind of concoction or almost like an abortifacient. And supposedly the superstitious thinking is if the uh, husband is the father of the child, then um, the pregnancy will be fine. It will continue. But if the um, child in the womb is the fruit of adultery, then the uh, the concoction will cause the woman to miscarry. So like I said, pretty much an abortifacient or whatever. And I think that's as close as you get to anything about abortion in the Bible. I don't think the New Testament has much to say about it. You could probably do some kind of cognitive gymnastics and try to really, you know, spin things a certain way. Um, and also in the New Testament, I just, my voice just cracked like Peter Brady. Also in the uh, Old Testament, I think surprisingly, it probably had to do or has to do with the um, the high infant mortality rate of the day where parents knew not to get too attached, you know, because um, a child might not, not only would a, um, a child might not come to term, but they might die within the first few years of life. That in the Old Testament, when, when at least in the context of monetary value, um, you know, compensation for wrongdoing, if someone causes the loss of a pregnancy or the death of a child or an adult, it's um, an unborn child doesn't seem to have as much monetary worth as far as compensation, you know, uh, as a fully formed child outside of the womb. And a young child, first couple of years of life or whatever, doesn't seem to have as much value as a grown adult. You know what I mean? At least I think that's the case. It's been a while since I covered it on the show, but I think that's the uh, the gist. So yeah, I mean, I think it's nice to really value life, you know, including unborn life. But uh, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of scriptural basis for this kind of preoccupation with abortion that uh, modern day Christians have. Okay, so this next one has absolutely nothing to do with religion or atheism, but I found it interesting. So you guys know that uh, I've been a, a Joe Rogan fan uh, for years. I kind of said fan in a weird way because <laughs> often I kind of find myself disagreeing with him lately, uh, but I still enjoy his show and watch him regularly. And I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but obviously, I mean, everyone's been preoccupied with COVID-19, right? It's affected all of our lives. Um, but he really seemed to take issue with the whole lockdown thing. And it seemed like every episode, he was just bitching about the lockdown and even kind of shoehorning it in and kind of monopolizing the conversation <laughs> when he had guests on who, you know, didn't bring it up or anything. Like, I think he had Tom Papa, a comedian. I think Tom Papa actually did some, like, voice overwork for uh, Rob Zombie. Uh, Rob Zombie had this kind of, like, adult cartoon, El Superbisto or something like that, and Tom Papa did some voice work. Um, and Tom Papa seems like... That's such a funny name, but he seems like a really nice guy, you know? Um... And I remember, like, Joe Rogan was just going off, complaining about uh, the lockdown. Tom Pop is just kind of looking at him, you know, as uh, Rogan keeps going. And, yes, it seemed like every episode he was bitching about the lockdown. And I get it. Um, 
I, I've talked about how personally, you know, I'm kind of an introverted, introspective type of guy. I do force myself to go out and do social things, go to parties here and there, whatever. But I also do pretty, pretty well on my own. It, it doesn't bother me to, to uh, kind of hang in for long periods of time. I always have productive things I can do, you know, projects I'm working on. Uh, I like to just be able to think, to read, you know, I, I always find something to keep myself busy. I'm not the type of person who gets easily bored, uh, but I have friends who are more extroverted and it's hard for me to relate, but they'll basically tell me how they kind of go stir crazy if they can't get out of the house, you know, where I'm kind of, I, I think I probably would have made a good monk or something, you know, I'm good at kind of shutting myself away and just working on things or whatever, keeping myself uh, entertained and preoccupied. Um, but yeah, he really seemed to be bothered by the whole lockdown thing. And he was going on, it seemed like almost every episode about how you can't just shut down businesses, etc. And um, how the lockdown was completely wrongheaded. COVID wasn't nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. Um, you should have just left it up to everyone whether they wanted to go to work or not. Uh, and going on about how um, it's really mostly just old people who are dying from it, which is true. But when you think about most illnesses, or at least these contagious diseases that tend to affect the respiratory system, isn't it the case that they usually tend to hit vulnerable members of society the hardest, uh, the elderly, people with pre-existing conditions, uh, sometimes small children? But in the case of COVID, I guess it doesn't seem to be hitting children any harder than adults. But in some cases, children are left with these really kind of disturbing, almost Kawasaki-like uh, disease uh, symptoms in the wake of it. Yeah, but COVID's pretty freaky. We're still in the process of trying to, you know, figure it out or understand exactly the toll it can take on people. Uh, even though it's considered to, I think, primarily be a respiratory disease, um, it's also known to cause blood clots. And so it can possibly, even in otherwise young, healthy adults, cause stroke. Uh, it seems to, uh, you know, be causing organ damage in certain cases, uh, all sorts of weird symptoms being left in its wake. Yeah, but in general, it's a respiratory disease. So it's like no surprise that mostly elderly people are dying from COVID when they probably have the most frail constitutions to begin with and they're the most vulnerable. And some people were kind of half-jokingly uh, you know, saying or implying that it may have had something to do with the fact that he couldn't go to the uh, the comedy store or whatever. I guess he has a, a kind of a regular routine of going out, you know, and doing comedy and uh, getting to hang out with his comedian friends and stuff like that. So he might have been pissed off that his, you know, his routine was changed and he couldn't get out and do his, his usual thing, um, which I get. But when we're talking about an epidemic, and you have a platform as big as his, where you li literally reaching millions of people. I think you almost you have a duty to kind of be responsible when talking about something like that, you know. And that you know, so you're saying that the lockdown was a wrong idea, it was it was wrongheaded, and all this, it was a mistake. And then, bam, you know what 
people, what experts predicted would happen, happened. These areas that weren't really impacted as much as the Northeast, like um, initially New York and, you know, New England, Massachusetts, where I'm from, these places were really hard hit. And New York was the epicenter of the, um, at least in America, of the, uh, of uh, COVID-19, of the outbreak. Um, And so now we're doing all right in the Northeast because of the precautions, etc. And other places that weren't initially hit hard, like Florida and Texas, the COVID-19 is surging with a vengeance and we're seeing uh, record-breaking numbers of, of cases. And now, at first it seemed like there were more cases but the but the death rate didn't seem to be as high, and people were saying, "Wait for it. Wait for the other shoe to drop." The um, the number of deaths will catch up, and we'll see those start to spike, and that's what we're seeing now. Um, so yeah, he'd been going on about how the lockdown was a bad idea, and this and that. It's not as bad as we thought it would be, and then bam, this thing is back with a vengeance in areas where it previously you know, wasn't as active. And because he was pissed about the lockdown, he was actually talking about moving to Texas with some of his comedian friends because they thought there would be more freedom out there. They'd be able to do whatever they wanted to do, you know. And then, bam, you know, like I said, it's now surging in Texas. Um, And on top of that, two of his friends, so two of his good friends are Brian Callen and Brendan Schwab, uh, who are both fellow comedians. And Brendan Schwab uh, was, is also an ex-mixed uh, martial arts UFC fighter. Um, and I, I, I don't know much about Brian Callen, but Brendan, Brendan Schwab, would Joe would have him on the show regularly. And I actually really liked him. I thought he was a cool guy. I like to listen to him talk. And I still think he's probably a cool guy. I don't hold this, you know, really against him. But um, Brian Callen and Brendan Schwab were kind of thumbing their nose at the whole whole COVID-19 and lockdown thing, were going around doing comedy shows to kind of show that, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of, you know, whatever, we're going to go out and do our thing. And guess what? Now both Brian Callen and Brendan Schwab both have COVID-19. And um, Brendan Schwab was actually... Uh, I think he posted to Instagram or Twitter the next day after finding out he had it, uh, a picture or a video of himself biking outdoors without a mask. And I guess he caught a lot of shit from it and, you know, for it rather and took it down. And so I think this is from some kind of local news station, their website. It's ksat.com, whatever the hell that is. Um, and this is dated July 3rd. And so uh, comedians Brian Callen, Brendan Schwab test positive for COVID-19 after San Antonio show. If you fist bumped me or took a picture with me after the show, go get tested. (laughs) And I don't know if that uh, that's a quote from Callen or Schwab. Uh, Two professional comedians have tested positive or or positive pending for COVID-19 after performing, I can talk, after performing in San Antonio last week, the pair said on social media. Comedians Brian Callen and Brendan Schwab performed live on June 25th through the 27th at the Laugh Out Loud Comedy Club on the North Side. 
Both Callan and Schwab took to social media to alert those that attended the show of their positive or positive pending results. Uh, so I think that's actually good on them in a sense. I mean, it's not good that they had such a um, cavalier attitude towards the pandemic to start out with, but the fact that they immediately took to social media to warn people they'd been in contact with to get tested, I think it, at least that shows, you know, an appropriate level of responsibility and concern. Uh, but yeah, so that happened. Um, Joe Rogan, very anti-lockdown, wanted to, you know, was considering moving to Texas. His best friends were thumbing their nose at the pandemic, performed shows in Texas. Uh, the pandemic now surging with a venge vengeance in Texas. Looks like they're both positive. So that's a thing. And once again, I, I want to apologize if the show seems to be getting kind of, you know, more and more political lately. Um, because I know I probably have a kind of wide range of listeners. Uh, I might have people who are more into the little historical documentaries, people who like it when I focus more on religion. Um, and then there are some people who, you know, listeners are probably lean left like myself, so they don't mind listening to my kind of lefty take on political topics or whatever. And once again, usually the show isn't this political, but everything's so polarized and everything's so crazy right now that it's kind of hard to stay away from politics, you know? I mean, technically I could, but, you know, it just seems to be everywhere and in your face. And so there's things I find myself wanting to uh, comment on, you know? And in that vein, one thing that really caught my attention was the president's 4th of July address or speech. And especially when he got to a certain point, I kind of couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was like a moment out of uh, some dystopian sci-fi movie, you know what I mean? Um, so I guess I'll read it. And it kind of starts off flowery, and, and then, you know, it kind of turns dark. So this is uh, verbatim from his address. Our workers, our factories have revolutionized industries and lifted millions into prosperity. Our artists, architects, and engineers have inspired the globe with transcendent works of beauty. Uh, and I'm laughing because this is obviously the work of a speechwriter. American heroes defeated the Nazis, dethroned the fascists, toppled the communists. Uh, have we completely toppled the communists? Uh, China? Pretty big. Uh, saved American values, upheld American principles, and chased down the terrorists to the very ends of the earth. You mean like when Osama bin Laden was finally killed under Obama's watch or authority? Uh, you know, not trying to give Obama too much credit for that, because I'm sure that probably would have happened under anyone's presidency, I would hope. It was just, you know, the luck and, you know, the timing that we were finally close to actually getting him. And then it was probably up to the president whether or not to give the okay sign to actually pop the guy, you know what I mean? And man, Trump hates Obama so much. I'm not sure why. I mean, uh, I don't know if it's because Obama kind of publicly humiliated him, you know, gave him some pushback. Because remember, uh, Trump really started to come into the forefront as a potential... Um, 
candidate for the presidency when he started pounding the drum for the birther movement, a movement which I think was uh, racist or at least, uh, you know, strongly xenophobic. Um, like I said before, you know, if Obama happened to be white-skinned and had a more Anglo-sounding name, uh, no one probably would have cared that his mother, you know, had been traveling abroad and, and maybe there was some chance that he wasn't born on American soil. I think it's pretty much a given he was born on American soil. You know, he was uh, born, uh, where is he from? Hawaii. And I remember the Republican, either governor or mayor, coming out and, and you know, saying, here's his birth certificate, you know. And then uh, Trump moved the goalposts. Oh, that's the, the short form birth certificate. Where's the long form or whatever, you know what I mean? And I always bring up the point, like, let's say for the sake of argument that Obama was born in Kenya, which I don't think he, he was. He was born to an American mother, a mother who is an American citizen. And I believe it's the case that as long as you're born to an American mother, no matter where, you know, you're born in the world, um, you have U.S. citizenship, you know. And this didn't seem to be a problem when Ted Cruz, who was born in Canada, was running for office because I think he's half Cuban, but looks hella white, you know what I mean? And he's a Republican. But uh, remember, is that one of those White House uh, like press dinners or whatever the heck it is? I, I forget the, the uh, name for the event. And uh, I believe this is after, you know, Trump was, you know, using the uh, this whole birtherism thing as kind of a vehicle for his own machinations or whatever. And Obama just let him have it. He, he was one up there behind the podium and just, you know, comedically laid into Trump. And you could see Trump sitting there in his chair. You could tell it totally got under his skin. And I remember, uh, you know, he had so much to say about Obama talking like a tough guy. And I still think it could be the case that Trump never even wanted to become president. He just wanted the attention and the clout. And it may have actually, to some degree, you know, come as almost like a shock to him or been kind of humbling when he found out he actually won because he might not necessarily have, you know, thought he would win or might not necessarily, once again, have wanted to win. Remember, he was like a little boy when Obama had to, you know, was showing him the ropes and when, you know, uh, he, he had to sit down in front of the flashing cameras and stuff with Obama. Uh, you could tell he was very humbled, uh, uncharacteristically so, and looked kind of out of his depth, you know what I mean? But then once he got his bearings, you know, he started uh, tearing into Obama again. And I think in part, uh, I think he does probably have some genuine animus, you know, towards uh, Obama. But I think also he likes he doesn't like to apologize. He doesn't like to take the blame for anything. So it's convenient for him to uh, blame everything on the last administration, you know, which rightly or wrongly, in fairness, I think uh, Obama did did, too. Uh, but he did uh, what he inherited a couple of wars and a kind of collapsing economy or whatever. Um, there was that uh, that recession of 2008. But now here's where Trump's speech kind of takes a darker turn, kind of made my blood run cold. Um, we are now in the process of defeating the radical left 
the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who in many instances have absolutely no clue what they are doing. So I feel like uh, I feel like maybe that one that last sentence may have been actually written by, or added by Trump. I can't do a good Trump, but I can just picture him saying that. That sounds like Trump. And people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Yeah, that, that sounds about more uh, Trump speed or intelligence level. But talking about going after the quote-unquote Marxists and agitators, that really does smack of McCarthy. At least it does to me. And most of you are probably familiar, but of course, Joseph McCarthy was the senator back in the day who led this kind of witch hunt um, against American citizens who he suspected of being communists, etc. And then he mentions the looters. And of course, there I mean, let's be honest, there was a lot of uh, looting, destruction of property, uh, and kind of the wake of the death of George Floyd and the civil unrest that kind of arose uh, in response to that. Um, but of course, there was, I mean, all of this started with peaceful protests. And I even remember, uh, I was actually kind of, I don't know what the word, I shouldn't say proud, but maybe in a sense, yeah, since they were fellow Americans exercising their their right to peacefully assemble and to protest. And it was moving. All these mostly young people assembling all over the country to peacefully protest police violence, racial inequality, uh, that kind of thing. But of course, unfortunately, you know, there was also the looting and rioting. And I found myself wondering if maybe, you know, you have the peaceful protesters, you have all these you know, these large groups assembled and maybe uh, other people, not the peaceful protesters themselves, of course, but maybe other people who would be more prone to resorting to violence or whatever, um, almost use these large gatherings as kind of cover or see them as cover and feel embo emboldened or maybe there's like a mob mentality, uh, passions get inflamed, you know what I mean? And, uh, violence and destruction of pro uh, property breakout. And I still don't know if he said this out of buffoonish ignorance or if it was an intentional dog whistle or, you know, throwing red meat to his uh, more far-right base. Uh, but he verbatim, I think it was verbatim, quoted a racist police chief from back in the day. And, you know, he tweeted... When the looting starts, the shooting starts. And so he must have heard or seen it somewhere and liked it enough or thought it would make him look strong enough or tough enough that he wanted to tweet it out to the world, you know? Uh, and I have a pet theory. I wonder if, I think it, it seems like a lot of things that he ends up retweeting or repeating or whatever are kind of meme crap, you know, that uh, <laughs> he picks up from like young alt-writers on Twitter or something like that. And so one, who knows, it might have been something like that, like uh, some right-wing edgelord on Twitter might have been intentionally quoting a racist police chief and Trump saw it and liked it and uh, foolishly retweeted it. Well, not retweeted. I believe he took the phrase, made it his own, and put it in one of his own tweets. But, you know, the point being, you had the sitting president of the United States tweeting out to the world 
when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Basically, is you know, even trying to interpret it charitably, I mean, it seems like he's basically threatening American citizens with deadly violence. Unless you want to try to say, oh, he, well, he meant uh, beanbags or rubber bullets, you know what I mean? But either way, no matter what, even with the most charitable interpretation, it's still incredibly... Uh, warped and irresponsible thing for the President of the United States to be tweeting. And I know it's kind of petty, but it was kind of funny too. And uh, I'm trying to think where I heard or saw it. I think it was David Pakman. David Pakman has this thing, like this almost like ongoing series where he kind of monitors what he sees as the deteriorating uh, mental health of uh, Donald Trump. Um or, you know, the cognitive decline. And he kept talking about, and he likes to bring up like his mispronunciation of certain words. And I think it was in that 4th of July speech, I think multiple times he mispronounced Ulysses, as in Ulysses S. Grant, as Ulysses, and he likes slurred. Um, I had to think that in a weird way, I was almost strangely impressed because it's almost like he confused and combined uh, Odysseus in the Latin name for Odysseus, uh, Ulysses, and he kind of fused them together like a Dragon Ball Z thing and created Ulysses. So in a way, I'm kind of like, if he at least knows who Odysseus is and he knows <laughs> he knows who Ulysses is, I almost said Ulysses, then <laughs> that shows that at least he has some, some kind of, uh, education or, or literary knowledge. <laughs> and I think he brought up the whole statue thing. And maybe that's why he brought up uh, Ulysses S. Grant. But he was talking about the whole thing where, you know, the, uh, the destruction of or tearing down of co Confederate monuments and things like that. And uh, I forget what I, what I was watching, but I was on YouTube and someone did this uh, this kind of side by side thing where they played a clip of Donald Trump being interviewed about what he thought about potentially or possibly removing Confederate uh, statues. And I think that was in the wake of Charlottesville. And he had a very measured and reasonable response, you know, to the question. And I don't want to toot my own horn, but it's pretty much identical to my own response, you know, my own opinion on the matter now. Um, and so I think he basically said that he thought it would be reasonable to consider removing the statues and putting them in storage somewhere or a museum or whatever. And that's pretty much my opinion. Uh, you know, as an art lover, um, well, I have to, I am kind of biased in the sense that I tend to like ancient history more than, um, more recent history, you know? Oh, modern history, whatever. And when there were all those stories in the news about ISIS destroying Mesopotamian uh, artifacts, um, that like made my blood boil. And I was it ISIS or was it the Taliban who had like also destroyed uh, Buddhist monuments? I think there was famously this giant carved Buddha that one of those um, radical Islamist groups destroyed. Uh, and that stuff makes my blood boil. I think that all this ancient history that's just now lost to the world, you know. 
And I, as I get older, I'm starting to get a bit more interested in like American history and more recent history, you know. But still, uh, for some reason, ancient history resonates with me more. So I'm not that bothered by what's done with American statues, you know. I think the one statue, I think there's a couple of statues I feel kind of connected to. I don't know if it counts as a statue. But as a kid, I used to love the grasshopper on top of the weather vane or whatever it is on Faneuil Hall. <laughs> and for some reason, that just captured my imagination. And uh, also, like, you know, um, the Minuteman statue. Oh, there might be more than one. I don't know. But um, in general, I, I don't really get passionate over, you know, the fate of, uh, of uh, statues from recent history. But as someone who has a respect for art, I think that the... Uh, the sensible and fair compromises, maybe, you know, remove some of these statues, but you don't have to destroy them, you know, put them in a museum or, or something like that. Um, that'd be fine with me. And that way they'd be somewhere where people can learn about the history, you know, and, and the, the kind of surrounding context of the, uh, of the statue or whatever. Um, and I know there's been focus on kind of different kinds of statues in a sense, there, there are the Confederate statues that uh, I'm not completely, you know, versed on this. I don't completely know what I'm talking about, just uh, in full disclosure. But supposedly a number of these Confederate statues were erected during the Jim Crow era and may have been intended as a kind of, you know, the equivalent of the middle finger to African-Americans or an attempt to intimidate African-Americans. But even then, I wouldn't say you have to destroy the statues. Once again, I'd say, you know, put them in a museum where they can be used to teach, you know, the history of a darker time, uh, you know. And when I think about it, the current times are pretty dark, too. But you know what I mean. And uh, the other statues are, um, you know, these kind of beloved monuments to the founding fathers, statues of Washington and Jefferson, uh, I think there was one of Lincoln. Um, I think it's a rather famous statue, but despite my interest in art, you know, I, I, I don't really know that much about it. I, I don't even think I really knew about it until recently. But it's a statue. I, I think it's supposed to kind of show, I don't know if it's Lincoln liberating a slave or something like that. But supposedly there's like um, a, a black, or maybe it's a former slave, you know, kneeling before Lincoln, like he's rising to his feet, maybe. And I think the proportions might be so that the the slave or former slave looks smaller than Lincoln, you know. Uh, I don't know. And people have been um, taking, uh, you know, offense at that. Um, I just decided to look it up instead of, uh, you know, rambling like a dunderhead, you know, <laughs> wildly guessing. Um, yeah, so it's called the Emancipation Memorial. And uh, it dates back to 1876. It's a bronze statue and uh, owned by the National Park Service. The artist was Thomas Ball. Uh, yeah, location, Lincoln Park, Washington, D.C. Uh, the Emancipation Memorial, also known as the Freedman's Memorial or the Emancipation Group, is a monument in Lincoln Park in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Washington, D.C., 
It was sometimes referred to as the quote-unquote Lincoln Memorial before the more prominent so-named... Okay. Uh, designed and sculpted by Thomas Ball and erected in 1876, the monument depicts Abraham Lincoln holding a copy of, the, of his Emancipation Proclamation freeing a male African-American slave modeled on Archer Alexander. I don't know who that is. The ex-slave is depicted on one knee about to stand up with one fist clenched, shirtless and broken shackles at the president's feet. And so uh, Archer Alexander was a formerly enslaved person who served as the model for the emancipated slave in the Emancipation Memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who is he? According to, uh, to Elliot, whoever the hell Elliot is. Oh, um, the story of Archer Alexander, written by William Greenleaf Elliot. According to Elliot, Alexander was born in approximately 1815 on the plantation of the Farrell family. And fin this could go on forever, but uh, it's probably an interesting story. And I'll read it later, uh, you know, on my own. And I'm reading about some of the criticisms and says the monument has been criticized for its paternalistic character and for not doing justice to the role that African-Americans played in their own liberation. And supposedly it says uh, Frederick Douglass took issue with the monument. And just to let you know the source I'm reading from, you guessed it, Wikipedia. So, you know, anyway. Um, and so it has a quote here from, uh, from Douglass. The statue showed the Negro on his knees when a more manly attitude would have been indicative of freedom. And then uh, it says, um, in, in a recently uncovered letter from Douglas that appeared in the National Republican, five days after the dedication, he said that the monument did not tell the whole truth. And here's a little uh, a quote. Well, the mere act of breaking the Negro's chains was the act of Abraham Lincoln. The act by which the Negro was made a citizen of the United States and invested with the elective franchise was preeminently the act of President U.S. Grant, and this is nowhere seen in the Lincoln Monument. The Negro here, though rising, is still on his knees and nude. What I want to see before I die is a monument representing the Negro, not, is it, Couchant? C-O-U-C-H-N-T, I don't think I've ever heard that word or seen it, on his knees like a four-footed animal, but erect on his feet like a man. There is room in Lincoln Park for another monument, and I throw this suggestion to the end that it may be taken up and acted upon. And I just looked it up. It looks like the word is couchant or cochant, uh, an adjective, of an animal lying with the body resting on the legs and the head raised. Okay, yeah, so that makes perfect sense, given the context. So it looks like Frederick Douglass just expanded my vocabulary from the grave. But this is a good example of something I've been thinking about recently. As someone who values you know, factual knowledge, evidence, that kind of thing. I've always found it a kind, I've always found it kind of unnerving how quickly your perspective on something can be changed with the introduction of new information or whatever. If I just happened upon an image of that statue or memorial, or if I happened to see it, you know, in person, um, my first thought would be, Oh, that's nice. It's kind of a monument to the end of slavery and to the, the liberation of African-Americans and that kind of thing. 
But then you read the criticisms of someone as prominent as Frederick Douglass, who was, you know, a contemporary critic of the monument, who lived at that time, and uh, you're like, wow, you know, his um, his criticism really resonates and makes sense. I can get why this might be offensive to some. You know what I mean? So I almost forgot why I went off on this digression about statues in the first place. So yeah, I think it was in the wake of Charlottesville and Trump was interviewed about what he thought about the idea of taking down Confederate statues, etc. And um, like I said, he had a very kind of reasonable take, you know, he said, well, maybe we should consider taking them down, but, you know, storing them, putting them, putting them in a museum or whatever. But now it's as if he's completely switched or changed his tune. He's, you know, it's kind of like he's in throw red meat to the base mode. You know what I mean? And, uh, he's, you know, he's going on about uh, they're trying to destroy our history. Uh, we can't let them take down our beautiful statues or however he puts it. And uh, he even, he, what, what was he? He talked about how he wants to try to pass a law that would institute like a 10-year uh, minimum jail or prison sentence for, you know, defacing or vandalizing or whatever a monument. And I do have to admit, like in the case of the Confederate statues, uh, and I already, you know, stated how in general, I'm kind of more intrigued by ancient history than I am by modern history, so I don't really give a lot of thought to, like, American monuments and statues and or anything like that. But uh, I have to admit, in the case of the Confederate statues, I'm completely like, yeah, who gives a shit, you know what I mean? Like I said, even then, it's still art, so I think, and the fact that it's a part of history, I think it would be good to put them in a museum or something like that. But when you get around to removing famous monuments of the founding fathers, people like Jefferson, Washington. Uh, well, Lincoln wasn't a founding father, but you know what I mean. Um, then I start to, I'm like, hmm, I'm going to have to think about that, you know. And it's like, I know the dark side of these men. And there's a, a lot of things I admire about the founding fathers, even as a non-believer, as someone who values reason. I mean, um, many of the founding fathers were products of the Enlightenment. You know, I mean, in, at best, they were deists, and Jefferson had the Jefferson Bible where he basically, literally with a razor, cut out all the miracles and that type of bit, you know, that type of stuff out of the uh, out of the Bible, and you're basically just left with the wise sayings of Jesus. You know what I mean? And, uh, and even uh, George Washington, I think I heard Brett Weinstein talking about this too, how he's a complicated character, as were many of the founding fathers and Brett Weinstein as, you know, a person who's Jewish was talking about how, um, how Washington would, would, uh, take, would take a stand against anti-Semitism and that type of thing. And, uh, I, Washington was pretty open-minded. I think even when it, when it came to working on, I'm trying to think if it was Mount Vernon or what it was, but, um, he was asked, what type of workers do you want? And he said, it doesn't matter what religion, what color or creed they are, as long as they're good workers, you know. So he was, in some ways, even Washington was this kind of enlightened, um, open-minded type of thinker. 
and, and probably like his defense of Jews and stuff like that and his open approach to other religions. If it wasn't Washington, it would probably offend some of like Trump's base. You know what I mean? Um, and Jefferson's take on God would probably offend much of uh, Trump's base, not to get into uh, Thomas Paine, right? you know? Um, but yeah, so I know they had a dark side. I know they owned slaves and whatnot, which is, you know, very serious. But I think they were products of their time and they were people of evolving character, you know? Yeah, I would, even I would feel like odd, you know, if, if people were talking about getting rid of like these big monuments to the founding, founding fathers, etc. And before I forget, so I don't have to, uh, you know, issue a correction next week, I'm trying to think if I accidentally insinuated that Ulysses S. Grant was with the Confederacy earlier. Hopefully I didn't. I, may, I might not have. I know very well that he was a Union general. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, yeah, so I've been out at this for over an hour. I can barely talk. So I might as well move into the final segment or topic. And I guess I'll use speech writing as a segue. So I mentioned earlier that there's no way in hell Donald Trump wrote that speech. And, uh, and actually, I think you can go to um, the White House's official page or whatever, and they have that entire speech, like the, tra the transcript or whatever. There's no way in hell he wrote that. And I think most people just take that as a given. It's kind of become the norm for politicians, etc., to use uh, speechwriters. You know, it's kind of just a given. And as someone who writes lyrics, who writes his own show scripts, and uh, it's probably painfully obvious that this episode is not scripted at all. Uh, but, you know, as someone who likes to use words to try to express himself as honestly and as sincerely as possible... Um, I don't know. It's just always been my pet peeve that people in power would use a speechwriter. You know, it's like if you're intelligent enough and capable enough to run a country, you should be able to cobble together a few sentences or, you know, a series of paragraphs on your own, you know, that reflect your own inner thoughts and feelings uh, that lay out your plans or agenda for the nation or whatever. You know what I mean? I'm probably making way too big a deal of it. It's just a, a personal pet peeve. There's always been something about people in power using speech writers and then listening to said person in power reading someone else's words from behind a podium uh, that smacks of, of um, insincerity or... That seems disingenuous, you know what I mean? And I know it's often the case that said person will often work in tandem or in cooperation with the speech writer, you know, kind of letting them know what they want to convey or what and maybe the speech writer just polishes it up and puts it in more flowery uh, language or whatever, you know. But still, still, and I imagine that there are some cases where, uh, it's just pretty much someone else's you know, thoughts and words, and there's not much uh, cooperation uh, going on. And I think I was watching The Young Turks earlier, and Cenk Uger was talking about uh, cable news people and uh, 
how it's often the case that there's just people behind the scenes who completely write for them what's going to come out of their mouths when they're on camera, you know? And the reason why I refer to this as a segue is because, here we go, earlier this week, Tucker Carlson's writer, his top writer, um, was fired or possibly pushed into resigning. I've heard it reported different ways. But the guy's gone. They didn't want him anymore. Turns out uh, the guy was uh, using a pseudonym to make all these kind of racist comments online. And this wasn't something that happened, you know, years ago. This is something that was still ongoing. And the writer's name is Blake Neff. And I usually wouldn't make fun of someone's appearance, but since he appears to be a shitbag, why not? Uh, he looks like a dead ringer for Dwight from The Office. I have to admit, you know, I love... Ricky Gervais, but I've never seen a single episode of the British office, and I've never seen a single episode of the uh, the U.S. version. But it's become such a cultural phenomenon that I'm familiar with the actors and the characters. Looks exactly like Dwight from The Office, and no offense to the uh, to the actor who plays Dwight, because I've seen that guy in different things. I actually uh, like him. Okay, and this is from uh, 7 News, ABC, um, in the Bay Area, <laughs> San Francisco, okay. But it says, uh, Tucker Carlson's, I can't, what the hell's wrong? I don't know if it's the amitriptyline and the anticholinergic effects, but I have all sorts of trouble uh, pronouncing words. Tucker Carlson, son of Carl, uh, his top writer resigns after racist, sexist posts revealed. Yeah, and so here's an official statement from Fox News. We want to make abundantly clear that Fox News media strongly condemns this horrific, racist, misogynistic, and homophobic behavior. Fox News Media uh, CEO Susan Scott and President Jay Wallace said in a, in a memo to staffers, Neff's abhorrent conduct on this forum was never divulged to the show or the network until Friday, at which point we swiftly accepted his resignation. Make no mistake, actions such as his cannot and will not be tolerated at any time in any part of our workforce. And I have to admit it that this is yet another episode that is, you know, the recording of which is spanning days um, just because of how busy I've been. So this is actually Tuesday night as I'm recording this. And I had hoped to get this episode out over the weekend. I feel like my show schedule is completely off and I apologize. But an upside to the recording getting dragged out is sometimes little interesting things pop up at the last moment. And so earlier today, it was announced, or Tucker announced, that he's going to be taking a, uh, a long-planned vacation. Um, and uh, everyone's already calling bullshit, because if, if this was a vacation you planned a long time ago, why the hell would it start on a Tuesday? You know what I mean? It seems that he's just really feeling the heat in the wake of... Um, his, you know, his top writer being pushed out. And also on top of that, it wasn't that long ago that sponsors were fleeing due to some of his um, supposedly controversial remarks. I think that was only a couple of weeks ago or something, wasn't it? Um, so some are speculating. And once again, uh, I'll go to uh, Cenk Uger as a source. And he actually worked in cable news. 
And he was saying from personal experience that when something like this pops up, like all of a sudden uh, a supposedly planned vacation or an unplanned vacation where someone disappears for a couple of days in the middle of the week or something or announces a vacation, that could mean that um, the people up upstairs are, uh, are, are mulling over whether or not they're going to cut you loose or not, you know? Did that sound like a horror movie? The people upstairs, uh, you know, the top brass or whatever. Um, anyway, before all this, I was planning on talking about Tucker Carlson. Ugh, I almost gagged on Carlson again. Tucker Carlson. Okay, there we go. I'm almost selfishly hoping he gets fired just so I don't have to try to pronounce his name anymore. Uh, but seriously, there's, you know, there's no guarantee that he's going to be fired. It very well, you know, may be the case that he's not, uh, but certainly doesn't look good. It seems like he, he's definitely under some, some heat, you know? And so, yeah, I was planning on talking about him before all this because he recently said some stuff that I just thought was beyond the pale and that pissed me off. Um, and, uh, just to give you my general take on Tucker, uh, see how I kind of avoided the last name there. Uh, I think I talked about this on the last episode because I was talking about Jon Stewart's appearance on Joe Rogan. Uh, for those old enough to remember, there was that famous clash on an old, I think it was CNN, right? That old CNN show, Crossfire. Um, Tucker Carlson uh, was one of the hosts and, uh, Jon Stewart was a guest and they, they really clashed. And I just always, like, Tucker Carlson always rubbed me. Hey, I think I almost got it that time. Always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I, I just thought there was something really kind of strange about his uh, his personality. Uh, something kind of off-putting, but hard to put my finger on it. Like, he, he was missing certain, I don't know, like, human emotions or responses or something. And I wonder if in part, and this is really just me playing armchair uh, psychologist, if, you're, if you weren't already, you know, aware, Tucker Carlson, uh, fuck, fuck me in my life, fuck his name, uh, t- Tucker Carlson is, is a frozen food heir. He comes from the family, the Swanson family that owns the frozen food company, Um and so I can't say for certain this is the case, but I almost get the feeling that maybe he was like a rich, entitled kid and uh, just didn't necessarily have to interact with people on a normal level or something. There's just something weird about uh, his personality. Uh, something a little off-putting, kind of like inconsiderate. But uh, at the some time, but at some points, you know, there would be times when he would almost seem human, almost charming. He might laugh or kind of break character, for, you know, drop the Tucker face for a moment, You'd laugh or smile, and he almost seemed like a charismatic guy you might want to hang out with or something, you know? And given his current position on the political landscape or whatever, you know, how uh, he's Fox News's um, top-rated guy or whatever, and uh, he's considered, you know, this kind of paleo-conservative, this really right-wing guy. It's kind of hard to believe, but I think it might have been back, it might have been like 2005 through 2008, something like that. He hosted a show on MSNBC, which just sounds absolutely batshit crazy now, right? The idea of Tucker Carlson being on uh, MSNBC. And I 
think I can actually remember him like joking around with Rachel Maddow and stuff like that, you know? Um, but like I was saying, I, I, I think I might actually kind of enjoyed his show back in the day, but I always found something about him a little off. And, uh, ever since he started on Fox news, you know, it just seemed like he's been going further and further right or something like that, or getting more emboldened and just real, really these coming out with these really in your face, hard, right views or takes on things and some people try you know they'll say he throws some populism in there as if you know he's taking some jabs at the right as well you know uh taking jabs at um you know corruption or whatever uh on the right and uh and on the left but ideologically he still seems like you know he's leaning hard right and uh, to some, it comes as no surprise that his top writer is this guy, you know, this kind of racist dude or whatever. Some people on the far left have gone as far as, you know, calling him a white supremacist or a white nationalist. Uh, to be honest, I don't, I try to avoid watching Tucker, so I'm not familiar enough with his his content to uh to pass judgment i have seen clips you know on different uh you know youtube clip shows and stuff like that and uh he has said some pretty like really hard right stuff that almost seems like thinly veiled uh racism but the thing that he did recently that really pissed me off was that he went after tammy duckworth i just want to say right up front that being a military veteran shouldn't be a shield against all criticism, but I think there are times when certain people are due a certain, you know, amount of deference and respect for the service, no matter how much you may disagree with them. You can still criticize them, but criticize them respectfully. And so if you're my age, you know, if you're a Gen X or whatever, you'll probably remember uh, Tammy Duckworth. Um, if you're younger, you might not. She's a Democratic senator, um, but I think she first came to the public eye because of uh, her military service and uh, how she was injured during uh, that service. And I think there's a long military tradition in her family going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, supposedly. And so when she was young, she joined the United States Army Reserve, uh, I think in the 90s or something like that. And um, she had been working towards a Ph.D. when the Iraq War uh, broke out, when we invaded Iraq. And uh, she was deployed and uh, she was a pilot and she actually um, she flew uh, Black Hawk helicopters and she was co-piloting one when um, it was hit with uh, hit by a rocket propelled grenade by Iraqi insurgents and she lost both her legs and almost lost one of her arms and so she is a democrat does as you would expect have you know left-leaning views and Tucker took offense at a, at least one of the things he took offense at was uh she was commenting on, I think it might have been on the statue situation, and she said something about how we should have a kind of national discussion about it, or, or, or national conversation, something like that. I forget the exact uh, phrasing. 
And Tucker just, you know, came out full Tucker face, all pissed off and indignant, you know, laring into the camera or whatever. Well, as I think I put it last time, like he just caught you shitting on his rug. And his attack on Duckworth may have spanned a couple of episodes. Uh, so, and he actually addressed the point that, you know, military service shouldn't make you free from criticism. And, and I agree 100%, but you should, you can criticize someone um, respectfully, even if their opinion or their viewpoint, you know, pisses you off or whatever. Um, and I know sometimes I can be disrespectful. I can kind of lampoon people or whatever. But even if the person is diametrically opposed to me, to my worldview, if, uh, you know, if it's some right wing person, if they served in the military and were injured in the line of duty, I am going to couch things respectfully. And uh, a good example is John McCain. I didn't always agree with John McCain. I actually thought Personality-wise, sometimes he could be kind of fun and charismatic. There are other times we could come off kind of like crotchety and nasty or whatever. Um, but I've always been moved by his personal story about uh, how he was taken prisoner during the Vietnam War. And because of his father was, you know, a prominent naval officer, he, could, he was offered the chance to get out of the situation, but he refused to, to leave. He refused to leave his brothers in arms who were also, you know, uh, being held captive, his fellow prisoners of war. And it just showed an amazing amount of integrity. And the guy was put through hell in, in a, um, Vietnamese prison camp, you know? And this is uh, the first time where I really became, cognizant of the fact that Donald Trump was a piece of shit was when, uh, like I said before, he was uh, leading, the, you know, pounding the drum for the birther movement. And uh, what reinforced my opinion that he was a piece of shit initially was when he said in a debate with John McCain that he looked at John McCain and said he prefers people that weren't captured. Now, here's a guy who never served a fucking day in his life and who had a stack of uh, deferrals, something a lot of rich people did back in the day, you know, including um, Dick Cheney. You know, they just uh, they didn't even necessarily have to be rich, although that did help get them, you know, help them avoid the draft. But people would make up kind of bogus reason, medical reasons why they couldn't serve. And for Trump, it was uh, bone spurs or something like that. But he had a stack of deferments. Did I actually say deferrals a minute ago? Deferments, you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so the shit that Tucker Carlson was saying about Tammy Duckworth, it was just beyond the pale. So, you know, after he said that her service shouldn't be, you know, a shield against criticism or whatever, he went on to call her a moron. If you don't believe me, you can find the clips online. Please do, you know. he If you want to subject yourself to his fucking show. He called her a moron, a silly person. And when he said that she served in the United States Army Reserve, he scoffed as if, you know, that's nothing to brag about. And here's another, I'm pretty sure Tucker Carlson never served a day in the military. 
fucking Swanson fried chicken motherfucker. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just like so burnt out from all the like the crazy political division. And uh, I'm so pissed off at Tucker Carlson. I hope I never have to fucking see or cover him again. I hope they do fire his ass. Fuck this. It's an hour 30. Uh, I'm out. Thanks, everyone. Till next time. <laughs>